If you would please open your Bibles back to Luke. We're heading into the ninth chapter today. Luke chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 10. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. If there is one thing that is established over that run of miracles that we had been studying the last three Sundays in Luke chapter 8, it's this. The one thing established is that power belongs to Jesus. All power belongs to Jesus. He calmed the storm that was raging on the Sea of Galilee. He cast out that demonic legion. He healed that that woman of her uh, 12-year hemorrhaging condition. And then he had raised from the dead Jairus' precious little girl. There is nothing in any realm or dimension, seen or unseen, within us or outside of us, spiritual or physical, that can resist the authority of the decree of Jesus the King. Jesus has all power. So, with that in mind, Do you think that the disciples, when Jesus gives to them, he turns around and he gives to them his power and his authority to wield over demon and disease, to proclaim the gospel and to heal. Do you think that the the disciples should go out to their mission confident? Should they be going out confident? Let's go over verses 1 and 2 again. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Up until this time, these twelve men that Jesus had called to himself, um, they had been in the background um, for, for a long, long time, witnesses to the most astonishing displays of power that the world has ever seen. Incredible displays. Order was being restored on the earth out of chaos. The works of the devil were, were being destroyed. The effects of the ancient curse that was on creation were being undone. The will of God was being done on earth as it is done in heaven. And the disciples were witness, witnesses to all of this. They would hear 
the authoritative word and just watch these, these wonders unfold. And I, and I wonder, as I've said before, how many times have these guys said, now I have seen it all, and then Jesus would turn around and do something even more incredibly amazing than the last miracle. But these men weren't just there for the spectacle, like a lot of the, the gawking eyewitnesses were, who were just there for uh, the, you know, some kind of sideshow. They were there because they, they liked to verify all of the rumors and reports that were spreading around Galilee. They weren't there just for the spectacle. These men were there to hang on every word of Jesus. Now they are being sent out themselves to further the message of the good news of the kingdom of God. They're furthering the message, and at the same time, this is kind of like a training mission for them, because they are being prepared for the day when they are going to be without the bodily presence of Jesus, and they're going to scatter everywhere and preach the gospel. So they're furthering the message, Right now, as Jesus is with them, and they're training for the future when they won't have him bodily any longer. We're going to come back to this in a moment. Let's, let's keep moving to the next few verses. We see that for this particular mission, Jesus gives his disciples a particular and peculiar set of instructions. He says, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So it was very clear from, from verse 4 that they weren't to, to go out into these different areas trying to find the sweetest accommodations that they could, trying to find the best deal. They weren't um, to beg for any help. They were to, to settle, in a sense, for the very first hospitality that they received. They're not beggars, and they're not peddling the Word of God. The Word of God is not for sale. That's very clear, because they have no money bag or, or anything like that. And, and they're, again, they're not trying to find the sweetest accommodation. So they're not beggars, and they're not peddling the Word of God. It's, it's sad that despite what the Galileans have seen over the previous, I don't know how long, several months at least, there are going to be many people in Galilee that reject the message of the kingdom of God come in the person of Jesus. This is incredible. What haven't these people seen? I mean, you would think that at least every citizen of the province of Galilee knows someone, at least they know someone who is there for one of the miracles. They have all heard at least first-hand eyewitness reports of the incredible power of God in Christ. And yet, the, the, the disciples are going to face the opposition of disbelief in Galilee. One of, there was a, there was a customary habit practice of the Jews when they would leave Gentile territory. This wasn't prescribed in the law or anything, but they would have this practice of shaking the dust off of their feet when they left Gentile territory as a witness against that land, a land that would be marked by unbelief, 
lawlessness, as far as the law of God goes, and uncleanness. And so as a witness against them, they would, they would shake off the dust of their feet. And now Jesus is applying that, that figure of speech to the Jews. Not just the Gentiles, but to the Jews themselves. That there would be many Galilean villages that rejected the good news of Jesus. And James Edwards makes the comment that Jesus is here condemning any presumption of salvation on the basis of ethnicity, nation, or race. The Jews, we know, did consider themselves right with God. You know how they would argue with Jesus and say, we are Abraham's children. What do you mean we're not free? What do you mean that we need to be redeemed? We're the children of Abraham. Of course we're saved. And yet Jesus told them, his disciples, shake off the dust of your feet as a witness against these people, as a mark of the judgment of God for their failure to believe. Because even in the promised land, James Edwards writes, there will be those who reject the promised one. Think of Romans 9, 6. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. When Jesus sends these men out, he sends out men who are very far from having it all together. We have seen, well, when you put all of it together, you know the the stories of the Gospels. (laughs) These men are, are very slow in a lot of ways. Not that we would be any better, but they are. There's a lot of foolish things that come out of their mouths, especially their leader's mouth, as far as the ranks of the disciples, Peter. I mean, guy opens his mouth, he puts it in his foot every single time, it seems like, right? These guys don't have it all together. They have a lot of misunderstanding about really who Jesus is. They're, they're slow in that sense. We're going to see how slow they are later on in chapter 9. But they don't even understand exactly how Jesus is going to accomplish the redemption of God's people. And shortly, when Jesus begins to tell them how he's going to redeem God's people, Peter is going to say, absolutely not, far be it from you, no way, I'm not going to let this happen. So they have a lot of misunderstanding. They're slow to believe and comprehend. They're going to face a lot of heated opposition. They're going to face opposition in the demonic form, Jesus says, as they go out right here. Opposition in the demonic form and in the form of hardened disbelief. So it's interesting. What does Jesus do for these men who really are unprepared? Who don't have great understanding? What does he do for them? He takes away from them everything that they might use or trust in or look to for help. That's what it is. See, in verse 3 again, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. So basically, you go out with the clothes on your back and with the sandals on your feet, and that's what you have. He stripped them of anything they could put in their hands that they might find useful. Clothes on their back, sandals on their feet, 
the word of the kingdom in their mouths and nothing else but the power and the authority of Christ. And is there any doubt that that is enough? That that is enough to obey Christ and to complete the mission that he gives them to do. This is very similar to what we were talking about last week with that woman who had the hemorrhaging condition for 12 years. She had looked to every doctor that she could find. She had tried every remedy that they prescribed and she had completely exhausted all of her monetary resources in trying to find healing. So now... Every hope has slipped through her fingers like water. She's got nothing left. And that's when she is in a very good place. Because the only thing that she can lay hold of then is Jesus. It's the same for the disciples. Christ takes away everything that they could hold in their hands. Everything that they could trust in. So all they have left to trust is Jesus himself, that puts them in the good place. Is there any doubt that they have enough when all they have is Jesus, the word of Christ and his power? Even considering all they lacked with misunderstanding, considering all that they lacked by way of supplies, imagine if after Jesus sends them, these guys are then paralyzed by fear, which on one level would be understandable, right? Because they're really slow. I mean, in a lot of ways, these guys don't have a clue. They're about to face demons and, it's, uh, and disbelief. But if, if these guys had been paralyzed by fear, started questioning amongst themselves and come to a complete standstill in their mission, we would read that and we would rightly say, pathetic. If that was the case, we would say pathetic. Why? Because eight comes before nine. Because of the context Because just prior to this, they were the first-hand witnesses of Christ's complete domination over every form of opposition, over all of these different realms. Jesus had established that He is Lord of all, and nothing and no one can contest His power and His authority. So that's what they have just seen. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, after being the first-hand eyewitnesses of that power and authority, Jesus says, I give to you nothing. I take away everything that you have. But here is my power, and here is my authority. So if they had been consumed with fear, paralyzed in their mission, we would say, that's pathetic. Because they had all that they needed to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we have so little confidence that power is ours? I know that you think 
that you are weak. When you think about yourself spiritually, you think about how you give in to temptation every day, you think about how you don't have all the answers, there are so many more people who are smarter than you and they'll throw a question at you about the Bible, some kind of skepticism, and you're, you're fumbling in your mind, you think, I don't have all the answers, you know, what, what can I do, how can I help anybody? I know that you think you are weak, and I agree with your assessment 100%. I hope that you believe that you are weak. We must all know that we are completely weak and helpless, and we cannot accomplish what Jesus commands us to do. We cannot say what Jesus commands us to say. We can't save a soul. We can't open anyone's eyes or ears or hearts. We can't change any life. It's when you know that you are weak that the power of Christ rests upon you. You know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12? Paul, that genius. I mean, he really was. If anybody had all of the answers, it was the Apostle Paul. But Paul had this thorn in the flesh. He said, we don't know what it was exactly. Could have been some kind of physical condition. Could have been the anxiety of the churches. Some kind of eye thing. We don't know. Which is good, we don't know. But he asked the Lord three times, take this away from me. And the Lord didn't really say no in those words. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. He said, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, the light dawned. He's like, ah, yes. So I will rejoice in calamities, in conditions, in persecutions, in hardships, and in weaknesses. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. If you believe that you are strong, let's correct that notion right now. No, you are not. You are weak. Get it in your head. Get it in your heart. Deep. You are weak. Now go out and prove the power of Christ. Because you have power. Not native, natural power. Nothing intrinsic to you. But you have God Himself in the Spirit of Christ within you. The power of Almighty God. Not only that, but you have the word of power in your mouth. The gospel of salvation. It is the power of God. The gospel, you know, it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So here we are, small little country church. We can name one weakness after another. None of that matters for the completion of the mission that Christ calls us to. We have power. And there is no excuse for being paralyzed by fear. And for not stepping out and proclaiming the gospel to those who are yet in darkness. Just like we would say of the disciples, if they had stood still and said, we can't do this, we would say, stupid. Don't you remember what you just saw? Don't you know the one who has given you power? So go out confident in the power and authority of Christ. Verse 6, And they departed, 
and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and Tetrarch simply means he is the ruler of a fourth. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear, about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now this is not the first time that we've heard the question from people. We, we, all through Luke's several, uh, first several chapters, this is the question that he's looking to answer. Who is this man? So it's Luke's great question for the first nine chapters. And I, I've told you before that this is the first question of history since Jesus. The first question of history that everyone needs to reckon with and answer. Who is this man? Jesus of Nazareth, who claims such incredible things about himself and about whom incredible things are claimed in the Bible. Who is this man? Well, we need to answer this question. I want to go back to uh, chapter 1 for a moment. No, not chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Let's answer this question. And in doing so, we are going to be reminded not only who He is, but who He is in His glory. So that we will be bold as we ought to be bold in our worship of Him and in the spread of His gospel. This is the way that Luke opens uh, the third chapter um, with his third historical marker. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 all open with these very specific um, historical markers as Luke is pinpointing the exact time frame of when Jesus accomplished these things. So he says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, emperor in Rome, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of the several places to the east of Galilee. So it's during that time that John the Baptist appeared, AD 28 or 29, he began to proclaim this message. And Luke quotes the message of John that comes from Isaiah the prophet. Here it is, verse 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is fascinating as you put these things together, because what we have in verse 1 is the names of all of these rulers who were thinking in that time that we're the guys in charge, who would not stand any contest or rebellion against their authority, who all think, this is my domain, and I am completely sovereign over it. So into that, John comes, and he says, make a highway for the Lord. What did he mean? What did Isaiah mean before him? What does John mean? Today, we give dignitaries and celebrities, deservedly or not, the red carpet treatment, right? 
and sometimes we just use that expression metaphorically for a big kind of to-do, celebration, whatever, uh, to welcome them into some place where they're going to get rewards they don't deserve and give speeches they shouldn't be giving and so on. Anyway, we, we call it giving them the, the red carpet treatment. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, when it comes to dignitaries, I'm not saying they're all unworthy of the treatment, but whatever. Well, that's what we do. That's what our culture does. Back in the day, way, way back, instead of giving the red carpet treatment for a king to be welcomed into a city, they would build a highway. They would build a road to the gate of the city. And that's what is meant by prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Fill the valleys. Bring down the mountains. Make straight the crooked. Level the rough places. Make a highway for the Lord. Because the king is coming. Listen, kings of nations, tetrarchs of provinces, puppet governors, the rightful king, the true king, the Lord of heaven and earth is coming. Make a highway in your heart for the king. Clear out all the obstructions and repent because the king is coming. That's who Jesus is, Herod. That's who Jesus is. He is the rightful king. One day, as we see later on in Luke, Herod Antipas's wish is going to be granted. He's finally going to see Jesus. Do you remember this? It's at his trial. Herod happens to be in Galilee at the time. And Pilate, who is the governor of Judea, knows that Jesus is from Galilee, and Herod, ruler of Galilee, happens to be down south. He says, oh, I can just send him on to Herod. Let This can be Herod's problem. So he, he sends him to Herod, and Herod's excited. He's like, yes, finally I get to see him. And if we would take the time to read Luke 23, you would see that's all that he wants. He wants to see a miracle. He wants to see a sign. And Jesus responds with nothing. See, he wanted the wrong thing, right? He wanted to see something. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. Herod didn't want to hear the message of Christ that Christ would proclaim. He wanted to see signs. He wanted to see the sideshow. The spectacle that he'd been hearing about for so long. So Jesus didn't show him a sign and Jesus didn't tell him a word. And that was Herod's judgment. Herod, who is Jesus? He is the king. I want to answer that question not only from chapter 3, but let's go back to chapter 9 and look again at verse 2. Back to Luke 9, verse 2. We're answering the question, Who is Jesus? Here's the content of their message summarized. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's a phrase that we see a lot in Luke's gospel, about 30 times the kingdom of God is on the lips of Jesus or in Luke's narration or whatever. The kingdom of God. So it's 30 times in Luke. 
You know how many times the phrase is used in the Old Testament Scriptures? Not at all. But when we hear it on the words of Jesus, it's not like Jesus is pulling some kind of idea or concept out of thin air. Like, here, let me tell you something that you've never heard about before. Let's talk about the kingdom of God. That's not the case. If we, we don't have time to go back there, but if we would go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we have a real neat, concise summary of the message of Jesus. Are you with me still? If you're kind of wondering, I know there's a lot of details, but let's get into this. Mark 1, 15, here's a concise summary of Jesus' proclamation. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does Jesus mean that the time is fulfilled? Jesus is saying that the promise of the past age, promises of the past age were finally in His day and in Him being fulfilled. What promises? What promises were being fulfilled? Promises of salvation. Promises of a Savior. Promises of a kingdom and promises of God's king. Promises like this. I wish I had the time for you to turn to these. Daniel 7, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What promises are finally being fulfilled in Jesus? Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, what does he mean? He means the promises are being fulfilled. Like this, from Jeremiah. Church family, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. I want you so desperately to understand the message of Scripture and to know these promises. So that when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, you can't help but burst with worship because the King has finally come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, Jesus said, and believe the good news. How can we not worship? When we hear those words, 
This is quite literally the best. The only thing that is going to top that word is that final trumpet blast that announces the return of the king and awakens the dead to everlasting resurrection. So when the disciples go out and they proclaim the kingdom of God, this is what they're saying. Finally, our hopes are being fulfilled. The promises have arrived because the king is here bringing God's salvation with him. Repent and believe the good news. All of that to answer Herod's question. Who is this about whom I hear such things? Church family, if the disciples had sat on their hands, if they had kept their mouths shut because they didn't have any confidence, They just looked within themselves and said, I can't do this. I don't have it in me. It would be pathetic. Because Jesus, the King of God's promise, had given to them His power and His authority. You are called first and foremost to repent. To repent of your self-rule and your self-righteousness and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior for yourself. That's what you're called to do first and foremost. Repent and believe in the good news. And then you are called. Having repented and having believed in Jesus, you are called to be an ambassador on Christ's behalf and declare the good news of the kingdom to those who are lost. That's our mission. That's our calling. I know you're weak. I know that I am weak. But it's when we are weak and know that we are weak that the power of Christ rests upon upon us. So church family, if we sit on our hands now, if we keep silent concerning the gospel that the world around us so desperately needs, it's pathetic. Because we have power. Weakness is no excuse our, our failure, our silence, all of that is, is disbelief in what Jesus has said when he has told us that you have power. You, he, he has given us a charge. He has said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded with you. And behold, I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's our power. So the world says to us, just like it said to Jesus, what authority do you have to say that there is only one way to God? Who do you think that you are? Who do you think that you are to say that Not believing in Jesus results in everlasting judgment. What authority do you have? They ask the same question of Jesus. What authority do you have to do the things you are doing? To say the things that you are saying? Our answer is we don't have any on our own. But the king of the ages, immortal, the only God, 
has given to us His authority to speak the good news. And He has given us His power by the Holy Spirit who resides within us. And we have the word of power. We know it. We know it. It's in our mouths. The good news of Jesus, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So who do you know who needs the good news? You you might say, you might say, the, the way I put it is just so awkward and it just sounds, you know, eh. That's me. That's what it sounds like coming out of me. Eh. If you speak a word for Christ, that word is not wasted. Speak on Christ's behalf. Speak the good news. And leave the, the persuasion, the, the heart opening and changing up to the God who says that this word is his power unto salvation. Who do you know? Who are you thinking about? Who are you praying for? Who are you pursuing a relationship with to share the good news of Jesus? Don't waste your time. Don't waste these days. Don't waste the gospel message. Let's proclaim it to those who need to hear. And if we sound like fools, the world thought the same thing about Jesus. They said, you are insane. You have a demon. That's what they said to Jesus. <laughs> they said it to him. What can they say against us? Let's proclaim the gospel. Father, we thank you for the gospel that has saved our souls. And we thank you, Father, that you do not leave us to ourselves in this mission that you call us to. You have given to us the power and the authority of Christ, not over demons and not over disease, but to proclaim the kingdom of God in your Son. I pray, Father, that we would be more faithful. So, Lord, may our fears be put to death. I pray that we would be freed, that we'd be confident, not in us, but in Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit to take this word of power and knock down the walls of pride and unbelief that are in the hearts of all who are lost. Let us be confident in you and faithful to speak your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.